So if you'd uh, like more information of how maybe you can uh, help out, Susie would be more than happy to uh, help you know how you can get involved. And there's a table back here that can also give you some guidance on that. So, Well, I, I would too like to, uh, before we open up into uh, Exodus chapter 30, I would like to just begin by asking the Lord to direct our steps this morning. Father, as we open your word, we come to you, Lord, we ask that you would impart to us your wisdom and revelation. Lord, that by your spirit you would direct us into all truth, that you would give us understanding by your your power, that you would help us to know the things that are true and Lord, to um, by your Spirit to give us wisdom and and how to live them out. Lord, may you be glorified in and through us and among us. And Lord, may those who are yet lost may they have their hearts turned to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I want to read a, a passage to you before we actually read Exodus chapter 30. It's from Jeremiah chapter 29, and a passage that perhaps you might be familiar with. It's often an often quoted passage. Um, God's people went through, uh, uh, the Jews went through several, several um, uh, moments in their history. Well, they weren't brief moments by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, periods in their history where, where they had this cycle of of drawing near to God and then rejecting and rebelling against Him. And in those times when they would rebel against Him, when they would reject Him, when they would uh, uh, place their hope and their trust in other things, um, God would allow them to suffer consequences, um, to undergo a form of discipline, if you will, that the hardship created by their rebellion against God would, would cause them to desire to turn back to him. And, uh, and in the midst of that, we have Jeremiah, one of those, one of those um, periods in their history where they were displaced from their homeland. And um, we have Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. God says he has a promise that he's going to fulfill. But notice um, what comes at the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise. God's promises are sure. And we can certainly bank on them. Uh, with everything we have. And, and he says that, he says as much, that he's going to follow through with this promise. 
But uh, in verse uh, um, 12 then, he says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. The, the thing that comes at the beginning of God fulfilling his promise is his people turning to him in, in humble prayer, seeking him, repenting, and, and pleading with him. God's desire, uh, God has his will being worked out among us. He is sovereign over all times and events and peoples and uh, governments and uh, natural disasters. And er- he is sovereign over all things throughout all of history. And God's desire is to glorify himself among all peoples that all peoples might come to know him. And he invites us to be a part of that, him making himself known. But for us to do that requires us to come to him with humility, with a a broken and contrite heart over our offenses to God and to recognize his rightful rule and reign in our life. Well, as we look at Exodus chapter 30, we're going to look today at the altar of incense. And the reason that I wanted to start off with Jeremiah 29 is because we're going to, we're going to look at um, what here just looks like uh, if, we, if, we don't, if we don't place Exodus chapter 30 in the context of, of the whole of Scripture, um, all we see is a piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Meaningful, no doubt, but we don't grasp um, the, the much greater understanding of what the altar of incense is all about. And just to clue you in, it's got something to do with the prayers of God's people. And so uh, we start in Jeremiah 29 because... While there's a lot of uh, sort of policy and procedure here, it seems like, in Exodus, specific ways that God says things are to be done, constructed, designed, um, and carried out, that one of the things that reigns clear through Scripture is that God looks upon the heart. And it is not that these details are not important. It is not that the way God prescribes that things are to be done are unimportant it is that the heart is most important where our heart is before God trumps the sort of policy and procedure if you will and as we get into Exodus chapter chapter 30 um, we're gonna we're gonna see the Old Testament uh, come to light in uh, in the light of Christ So let's look at uh, Exodus chapter 30, verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. So remember, we're talking about the the tabernacle, uh, the the place where God is manifestly making his presence known among his people, where God meets with his people, where where sins are atoned for, and and God communicates with them. So so this is one of the, the, the pieces that is to be in the tabernacle. Um, 
You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make, a, make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its moldings on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them. And they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. All right, so just to get uh, some understanding of what, what the, the, the placement, the geography is, uh, if you will, of the, of the tabernacle, I hope that you can kind of see this. It's a little bit difficult. But as, as one would enter the tabernacle here, the first thing that, that you would sort of encounter there would be the place of sacrifice. Uh, this is significant, and we'll get into it more in a moment. But So the first thing you encounter is the place of sacrifice, uh, where sin would be atoned for. And then as you proceed into the, the actual, uh, so this is the courtyard, and as you proceed into the actual tabernacle itself, I don't know if you can see, but you see kind of the, there's the first, there's the purple curtain on sort of my side here. And then deeper in, there's an, in the interior, you see another purple curtain there. So that is the veil being discussed here. So on, on, the, on, on the far side there of, of that interior veil is, is the ark, uh, the mercy seat with the testimony. And so that is the most holy place. That is the place that, uh, that, um, that Matt mentioned about, uh, you know, that it, it, you're more likely to get struck by lightning a thousand times than to be the guy that actually goes in there uh, one day a year. So th- uh, that is the most holy place. We're virtually uh, save one, uh, and only then, at a certain time of year, uh, no one was permitted to enter that. That was a place where, where God dwelt among his people, where his, his manifest presence uh, existed there. And so um, that was a, a, a uber-protected uh, place, if you will, that all anyone who would enter there, there were very strict guidelines that... that uh, this is the holy place of God. This is where God dwells among His people. And so, bef- but bef- in front of the veil, we have the altar of incense. I don't know if you can see that sort of uh, um, kind of tallish uh, looking, I don't know, it looks like a little podium or something there in front of the veil. That's the altar of incense. All right, so... Um, this, this hopefully will we'll pull together a little bit as we go on here. But So as you enter into the courtyard, you first encounter the place of sacrifice where sin would be dealt with. Then, if you were permitted, which you wouldn't have been, but if you were permitted to enter into the tabernacle itself, the, ver- the next thing that you would encounter before you get to the veil would be the altar of incense. And, and then, if you were permitted to actually go beyond the veil, you get to the very presence of God. 
in the most holy place. Um, so keep that, keep that kind of in your mind because there's a, there's a remember Hebrews says that, that these things of the tabernacle um, were a, an earthly uh, picture of heavenly realities. And so there's something deeply important about God himself and about the way God interacts with us and, the, and how we connect with God pictured here that hopefully will come to light as we go further along here. So to get to the altar of incense, you would first encounter the altar of sacrifice where your sins would be atoned for, and then once purified from sin against God, then you encounter the altar of incense um, in front of the veil of the most holy place. And I want to, to look at he, what Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, or 22 through 25, actually. This makes Jesus, so Hebrews discusses the priesthood and the roles of the priests that would serve in the temple and, and the nature of what they were called to do and the sacrifices and all of that. Um, and then what Hebrews does is it takes the role of the priests and, and shines a light on Christ as our great high priest, the great high priest. That, that, that is that there is no priest who could ever do what Jesus Christ did because he is the only one who could perfectly atone for sin once and for all. Who could perfectly mediate for us to the Father. So this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented in death from continuing in office. Sorry about that. My ear is uh, not hanging on here. Um, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. All right. So here's, here's what I want you to see. So one of the things that, that we're going to see, uh, well, I guess I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but the, the picture we have of, of Christ as our advocate before the Father. So we are, are sinners who are not allowed to enter into the presence of God. And unless our sin is atoned for, unless our sin is paid for in full, we may not enter into that holy place where God dwells. We may not know Him. We can know of Him, but we may not know Him. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, sinners have gained access to the Father through Him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so access to God, access to the most holy place. I'm having fits with this thing. I'm going to use this one, Mike. There we go. Access to the most holy place. Is, goes through Jesus Christ. And so the picture of the altar of incense 
sitting before the veil that is in front of the place where God dwells is a picture of Christ, the one who we go to to meet with God. So watch how this comes together here. So let's go look at verse 7. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Okay, so uh, um, there were instructions that, that the priests had that they were to, uh, uh, to, to trim the lamps and get those going. And, but, and when they did that in the morning and the evening, they were also to burn incense. And so there's this cycle uh, and repetition and consistency of the incense being burned at, at the altar and that incense, the aroma, uh, rising in the tabernacle. And so there's this constancy um, of what's going on in the, in the tabernacle, in that holy place, that constancy of the incense being burned. There's a picture of, of that, uh, uh, well that you'll see come together in just a minute here. Psalm 141. I I want you to see something here. Uh, Psalm 141, David says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. What we're going to find as we move through Scripture all the way into Revelation is the picture that we have in the tabernacle of the altar of incense where incense is burned. So just for understanding, so the blood sacrifice that happens at the altar of sacrifice, that that thing that you first encounter in the courtyard, that blood actually gets applied to the altar of incense to make it holy. So the blood gets applied to the altar of incense where the incense is burned and one of the things that David is saying here is let my prayer be like incense well as the incense burns or think of anything that burns what what do you notice about the smoke it rises it is the very picture of our prayers being delivered or offered up to to God himself and so David is using this as, as, for himself as he prays, Lord, let my prayer be counted as incense to you, a fragrant offering, something to be received by you as an offering from me, sweet to your, to, uh, to your nostrils, Lord. So in Luke chapter 1, we have something I, I think that, that uh, is an interesting thing to me. And, uh, turn with me there in Luke chapter 1. So this is um, actually part of the birth account of John the Baptist. And his father, Zechariah, served in the temple. And it's actually the place where... Um, the revelation of uh, the birth of John the Baptizer takes place here is while Zechariah is serving. 
So let's let's encounter that here. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Right? So you, you understand that what that means now, that he enters the temple to the altar of incense to burn incense. Remember, this is a a constant thing that's done morning and evening. And Zechariah is on duty to burn incense. Verse 10, And the whole multitude of the people, what were they doing? They were praying outside at the hour of incense. There, there is a correlation between the altar of incense and the prayers of God's people. All right, let's keep, keep going a little further here. Did you, did you know... Uh, and I'll, I'll just throw these out there, and you can, you can go look them up. We might double back to it later. But in Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 8, um, there, there are believers who are suffering. And they are crying out to God. And there is a picture of their prayers being offered up as incense. That the incense are the, the, the prayers of the saints. Luke chapter 18 verse 1. This is Jesus, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So remember, I I hope this isn't getting lost, and I hope I'm communicating effectively. What's going on in Exodus is highly significant to what's going on in the New Testament and the coming of Christ, and even all the way up through Revelation, the return of Christ. Because what happens at the altar of incense is a, it's a physical thing going on there. There's a, there's a physical altar with physical incense being burned. But there is a spiritual reality to that that is, that is so profound. That first, sins are atoned for. Then one approaches the most holy place where they can interact with their creator and judge. The, the lover of their soul. And the incense rising morning and evening is the picture of that, the, the prayers of the saints being offered constantly, continually, as an offering to God. Jesus told a parable, and you can read about this parable following this in Luke chapter 18. There's a, a phenomenal parable here about persevering in prayer. But it's, the first, very first verse says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Constant. Like, like the burning of incense in the temple, in the tabernacle, morning and evening, that constancy, constancy in prayer. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 says to pray without ceasing. Let's look at, uh, let's continue on here, verse 9 of Exodus chapter 30. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. God's God sets out parameters here for what the altar of incense is to be used for. And it's not to be used for whatever they want to use it for. It has a purpose. 
the, there's a certain type of incense that God prescribes to be burned there. They're not to just sort of whip up their own concoction like, hey, I've got a better recipe. I've got a better plan. Or any sort of personal motivation to be entering into what happens at the altar of incense. There is a proper way that God prescribes to burn the incense on the altar. To keep it holy to himself. But here's the thing. He was far more, as we go through scripture, what we find is that God was actually far more uh, interested in the heart of the one who approaches the altar of incense than he was with the details of, the, of, of what is happening at the altar of incense. Now, that, that is not to say the details aren't important. I don't want you to think that I'm trying to say that the details aren't important or what God said of the way it's supposed to be done is unimportant. But, but what, is, what becomes really clear is that God really is looking at the heart of the one who approaches the altar of incense. Here's what I mean. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Well, wait a minute. God said to come and burn incense. How can it now be an abomination? New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. What is God saying here in Isaiah? It's essentially that, that while, while your lips and your actions may, may show a form of godliness, your heart is far from me. So you bring your offerings, you burn your incense, and it means nothing. In fact, it's profane because of the condition of your heart when you bring it. So he just says, don't bring it. Your your heart is filthy and disgusting, and you are walking in rebellion against me. Your offerings and your incense mean nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing. It's, It's a mockery to God. Look at Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Bring no more vain offerings. Uh, Wait a minute. That's not right. Let's look up Hosea 6, 6. That's my fault, by the way. I copied and pasted wrong. Here's what Hosea 6, 6 says. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Catch that? God didn't say, I don't desire sacrifice or I don't desire burnt offerings. He says, I desire steadfast love as preferential to sacrifice. God wants both. He wants sacrifice that flows out of a heart devoted to him. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Burnt offerings are nothing if they are not connected with an understanding of the one you, that they were being brought to. The fear of the Lord. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Verse 9. So this is... Uh, um, well, you can read the first part of Luke 18 there, the parable following the verse that we read earlier. But Luke chapter 18, verse 9. 
He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, catch that, that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. So he's speaking to, it says, some who were trusting in themselves to be righteous for their righteousness and treating others with contempt. Okay, here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, which everybody knew, I mean, everybody knew tax collectors were just like scum of the earth, right? They'll stab you in the back and take your wallet and walk on you, you know, they're just, you know, that was sort of the common understanding of a tax collector. And so there's two men uh, who go up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee who everybody knows is righteous, right? They know their stuff, they do the right stuff, and the tax collector, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you for salvation. No, no. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You know who I'm talking about, Lord. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like... But he didn't even nod. He just says, this tax collector over here. And as you know, Lord, uh, you will find on my resume that I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, you see that? The tax collector doesn't even feel worthy to come near. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what did Jesus teach? Did he teach that we shouldn't pray? No, certainly not. He teaches that we should pray and that we should bring a heart heart of walking in the fear of the Lord, humbled before God when we come. Recognizing our brokenness, recognizing our sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. So how do we approach the altar of incense? The, how do we approach God in prayer with purity from our sin. Uh, Look at verse 10 in Exodus chapter 30. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So the the blood uh, of the sacrifice from the altar of sacrifice atoned for the altar and made it a holy place for the incense to be burned. And catch this. The altar was the place for the incense to be offered to God, as Christ is the place for our prayers to be offered to God. His, Christ's blood shed on the cross, the cross being here like the altar of sacrifice, 
Christ's blood being shed on the cross permanently atoned for our sins and his blood applied to our lives makes our prayers holy. Why is it that the living God can hear you and me when we call out to him? Because it is Jesus Christ who has gone before us to appeal to the Father and to to bear the weight and burden and, and guilt of our sin and punishment of our sin. That the Father no longer holds that against us, but views us through the righteousness of Christ. Which is why, as Matt said, the scriptures tell us to approach the throne of grace boldly. Christ has made it possible for us to enter that holy place to have communion and fellowship with God. This this is an astounding thing for each of us to have access to God. Exodus 30, we're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 30. Verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices. Now, I might butcher these, but I'm going to throw it out there and give it a whirl. Stockte and Annika and Galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it uh, to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. God reminds his people again to keep the altar of incense free from evil desire and selfish pursuits. Um, you know, uh, scriptures kind of warn against those kind, that kind of a prayer life where we approach God with selfish pursuits, asking him to give us the stuff that our heart desires rather than asking him to give us the, give us the heart that desires the things that he desires. That we come in prayer saying, Lord, do this and do this and do this. That things that are flowing from something that we want without ever really saying, God, what do you want? God, what is your heart? James chapter 5 has some wisdom to speak into into our prayer life. James chapter 5, verse 13, and this is a call to believers, to the church. And, uh, and as, I was, I was pre- as I was preparing for the message uh, today, um, it, it just, uh, just felt that God Im- impressed upon me that... Uh, this is, this is a place where we need to uh, spend a little more time and do a little more excavating is, is this whole, um, the whole subject of prayer. And so we're going to actually kind of uh, take a, uh, a little bit of an exodus, if you will. Actually, more, less of an exodus and more of just like a, ooh, let's slow down uh, and, and let's, let's take this in. 
um, as we go through this part of Exodus and look at prayer more deeply. And so we're going to spend the next couple of weeks doing that. But James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The prayers of those who walk in the fear of the Lord, who are humbled before God, who are trusting in Him instead of themselves, have great power. They have great power because they come not from our own selfish ambitions and desires, but because they come from the Spirit of God Himself. In accordance with the will of the Father. When the prayers of those who are seeking to walk with God are offered to God purely from the heart, the 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 altar of incense, if you will, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave himself for us, when our prayers are offered up, having been cleansed through Christ, that God hears that. Those prayers are offered up not from a sinful place, but from a holy place. That when we appeal to God out of the, out of the Spirit of God, That we're praying the very things that God himself wants to do. Remember in Jeremiah, he said, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you back. He said, but first, you're going to turn to me and pray. And humble yourselves and seek my face. James says, pray for the suffering. And the sick. Pray for the believer walking in sin. And pray with a clear conscience, having confessed your sins first to God and to others when it's necessary and appropriate. In fact, he even ties that there's some sickness that's related to sin. person walking in sin. Church, this is, God has given us such an incredible means of, of communicating with him, one, 
but also of seeing the power of God at work in our midst. As we turn first to him, you know, we talk about prayer and sometimes we kind of hear these sort of colloquialisms that are, are sort of like uh, point to prayer as sort of our last resort. Well, he doesn't have a prayer, meaning <laughs> there's no chance. Not even prayer is going to help him out. Like that's how bad it is that prayer won't even help him. Like it's not like the Hail Mary is, is prayer. Like, you know, follow the directions and, or, or I mean, you know, try to, you know, when you get a box and you start to assemble it, and it's like if all else fails, follow the directions, right? Well, I've tried and tried and tried, and if nothing works, I guess I'll just pray about it. Do we recognize that we have the power of the Almighty God right here? That prayer is not the last resort. Prayer is the first stop. In everything, pray without ceasing, that we take everything in prayer to the Lord. Now, I'm preaching this passionately, but I'm also being very convicted at the same time. Let me just assure you of that. That I'm learning to live this out. We're in this same boat together of learning how to walk with that constancy of prayer in our life, like the incense rising in the tabernacle, morning and evening, that constancy that we walk in prayer, that we walk in communion and and conversation with God. And the more we do that, the more we see the power of God at work among us to heal the sick, to save the sinner, To restore the lost. To reconcile people. So church, we're gonna we're gonna actually spend the next couple weeks diving deeper into prayer, but I want to strongly encourage you. um, One thing that that just one habit I would encourage you to begin to pursue and cultivate um, into your life here. Is, is this habit of prayer, and especially as it relates to, to other people, and not just praying for other people, but praying with other people. And so um, one of the things that I've just been so encouraged and blessed by is uh, it seems like it's, it's any given Sunday here, which is awesome. Uh, I'll see a couple of, of you visiting, and one of you will end up praying for the other one. Or a few of you will be gathered and, and pray for one another. I want to encourage more of that. You know, we visit after church or Bible study or wherever. We visit and we hear how it's going. And, you know, you know this, we share those things a little bit. But we have an opportunity, church, to join together to actually do something about it. You know, it's like everybody talks about the weather and nobody does anything about it. We all ask each other how it's going, and oh, I'm sorry to hear that, and we do nothing about it. We offer a a really brief, maybe empathetic comment, and maybe we mean it, but we have something we can do about it. Spelled out here in James, we can pray for one another. It's not a last resort. It's the first stop on, on on the rail. So church, I just wanted to encourage you to begin to cultivate that habit of when you, when you meet together, be looking for opportunities to, to just sit down and pray for somebody. It doesn't have to be fancy. 
God's looking at your heart. He hears it loud and clear. And when you don't want and when you don't know what to say, scriptures remind us, the spirit does. The spirit of God knows exactly what to say. So submit yourself to him and pray for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth revealed in it. Lord, how you reveal yourself to us and invite us deeper in, that we would know you more fully, that that we would give our lives fully to you and see, Lord, that you are faithful, that you are loving. Lord, that you desire good things for your people and that you desire good things for those who are lost, that they would be turned to you. Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to pray. As your disciples came to you and said that very thing, Lord, we ask that you would teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us how from the very center of who we are, Lord, to surrender ourselves to the Spirit of God to pray in accordance with your will. Teach us what that is. Show us how to do that that our prayers would be powerful and effective for your kingdom, for your glory. Lord, I pray that for this church, the Lord together, that our prayers would be powerful and effective for one another and on behalf of our community, our families, our friends and neighbors. Lord, on behalf of, of our nation and our world, God, help believers to step up in this day and to go to the first place we should go instead of considering it a last resort, Lord, to come to you on our knees. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.